Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't own a Bible or whatever, all the notes will be in your uh, little program. They'll show up on the jumbotrons and, and all that kind of stuff. We're starting a brand new series here at Big Valley Grace um, called Becoming a, a Godly Leader. And uh, it's my goal that over the next 12 weeks, if the Lord doesn't come back, that we'll be able to take this, this book and uh, I, I, I'm really praying that I can somehow make it applicable to all of our lives. That though it was written thousands and thousands of years ago, there's still some really great, great stuff in it that we can all learn from that would transform our lives. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28, when there is, where there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily but wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. One, one version says it like this, when a nation sins, it will have one ruler after another, but a nation will be strong. A nation will endure when it has intelligent, sensible leaders. And I want you to zero in on those two words, strong and endure. Those are two of the benefits of having good, intelligent, wise, godly leadership. When you have good, intelligent, wise leadership, it makes a nation strong, doesn't it? It brings stability to a, to a nation. But I think you could also uh, apply this verse in some other areas of our lives. I, I think you could say that a family will be strong and endure and have stability when there's good, godly, wise, intelligent leadership. Some of you are here right now, or you're over in the venue, or wherever you're at, and your home might be a mess right now. Things are chaotic. Things are a little crazy. A lot of you know, stuff going on. This might be the, the, the series that will make a difference in your family. I think you could say that a business will be strong and endure and have stability when there's good, you know, intelligent, wise leadership. I think you could say a church will be strong and endure and have stability when there's good, intelligent, wise leadership. Beloved, there's Few things that are needed more in life today than good, wise, intelligent leadership. We need, our, we need it in our homes. We desperately need it in our homes. We need it in our businesses. And we have a lot of business owners that attend Big Valley Grace. This is your home church. This is your family. You need it in your business. We need it in our, our, our nation. We need it in our world. You, you name it. Well, as I said, we're going to we're going to begin an exciting discovery on, on leadership, and the book of Nehemiah is going to be our guide. It's one of the, the great leadership books that, were, that was ever, ever written. And as I said, I hope I can make it real practical for us all. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different in, in this series. Uh, I'm going to start each message with a thought on leadership. In other words, I'm going to put aside just Nehemiah just for a moment. I'm going to give you a, a thought on leadership. And what I'm going to do is each week, and I'll, I'll give you what I'm calling a leadership principle, okay? And the first one is this. Leadership is all about character. It's all about character. Okay? It's not about charisma. Charisma has nothing to do with leadership. Personality or, or temperament has nothing to do 
with leadership. Wealth has nothing to do with leadership. Age has nothing to do with leadership. Leadership is all about character. It's not about reputation. It's about character, and there's a big difference between reputation and character. You can have a great reputation and have horrible character. Reputation is what other people think about you. Character is who you are when nobody's looking. And those are two different things. D.L. Moody once said, character is what you are in the dark when nobody's looking. And that's a pretty weighty, weighty thought. The Apostle Paul said this about leadership, church leadership specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He said this, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, somebody aspires to be a pastor, in other words, somebody is aspiring to, to, to leadership, he desires an honorable position. So an elder, a pastor, a, a leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. And that just about covers it all. There's nothing in their life that somebody can get a hold of and go, ah, look at this, see? You, you, or, you know, you did this or whatever. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control. He must live wisely and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil could cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be a disgrace and fall into the devil's trap. Beloved, these are, are some of the characteristics of a leader, especially a leader of a church. Now, did you notice that nowhere on that list did Paul say that you had to be a college graduate? It's not there. Nowhere did, on that list did Paul say you even had to be a high school graduate. It's nowhere on that list. Nowhere on that list did, did Paul say that, you know, you have to be an outgoing person to be a, a leader. Nowhere on that list does it say that, you know, you, you got to be wealthy to be on the list, you know, to, to be a leader. He didn't say that you have to be, you know, good looking or whatever. He didn't say any of that. Why? Because leadership isn't based on academics or personality or wealth or temperament or whatever. It's based on character. It's based on who you are when, when, when no one's around. Some of you have a choleric uh, 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 personality or, 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 or temperament, and I think Paul was a choleric. When you look at the life of Paul, I think he was a choleric. Some of you have a sanguine personality or temperament. I, I think Peter, when you look at his life, he was a, probably a sanguine. Some of you have a melancholy personality or, or temperament, and I think Moses was probably a, 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 a melancholy. Some of you have a phlegmatic a temperament or personality. And I think when you look at the life of Abraham, he was probably a phlegmatic. And these four men were as different as you could get, yet God used them all. Why? 
Because leadership has nothing to do with personality or temperament or wealth or whatever. Leaders come in all shapes, all sizes, all colors, all temperaments. They come from all different kinds of backgrounds. There is no one leadership personality. The one thing that all good, God-honoring leaders have in common is character. Leadership is all about character. And as we look at the life of Nehemiah, we're going to see a man that was really kind of an ordinary guy. There really wasn't anything special about him. But he was a man who had great character. And because of that, he was a great leader. And we're going to learn a lot from, from his life. Now, with all this said, um, I need to set up the story of Nehemiah, okay? I need to do a little little background on it. I don't want to bore anybody or anything like that, but it's important that you understand the, the, the story to some degree. One of the things that's difficult for, for a preacher um, is this, is that some of you came to know the Lord last weekend here. Some of you came to know the Lord during the Christmas season, had lots of people. Some of you have walked with God longer than I've been alive. And so I sit in my office each week and I understand that some of you, you know, are here and you know very little and some of you are here and you know a whole lot. And how do you put it all together so it all somehow makes sense? It's, it's something we can all apply to our lives. And so for some of you, this is going to be interesting. For others, you're going to go, well, what does that have to do with me? I need to tell you a little bit of the story or the background to this, to, 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 to Nehemiah, okay? In 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem and the, and the temple were destroyed by an invading army. And the Jews that lived there, that lived in Jerusalem at that time, were deported, if you will, to, uh, to Babylon. And Babylon is where Iraq is today, okay? Then about 50 years later, in about 537 BC, the, uh, the, the first group of Jews that were deported were allowed to return to Jerusalem, the place was in ruins. The walls had been knocked down. The town was in ruins. The, the temple was destroyed and all of that, okay? Then about 20 years after this, first group of Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And in 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. So this first group comes back. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden, 60 years later or so, uh, they begin to rebuild the, 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 the temple. Then about 60 years after the temple was rebuilt in 458 B.C., Ezra led a second group of Jews back to Jerusalem. So now you got two groups that have returned, okay? Then about 13 years after that, in 455 B.C., Nehemiah asked the king for permission to return to Jerusalem with a third group of Jews to rebuild the city and especially the walls of the city. I want you to understand that probably Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. His mommy and daddy had been deported. He was born in Babylon probably. He's never been there. But now in about 455 BC, he asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and, and rebuild the, the walls and all that. Now, let me tell you why it was so important to have these walls rebuilt. It was important because without the walls, the people that lived in the city were defenseless. 
That's how you defended a city back in those days. We, we don't do that now. We don't put a wall up around you know, the city of Modesto or you know, Ceres or whatever. We, we don't do that today. But in those days, you put a wall up so that if bad guys came, you know, an invading army, an evil army, it, it might take them months, you know, a month or two or three or four just to break through the wall and, and get in. And, you know, and so at least you had some time to you know, throw rocks at them or shoot you know, bows and arrows at them or throw things at them or whatever. So the, the walls protected a city. Now, because they had no walls around their city, the people were discouraged. They were defeated, which is the second reason these walls needed to be rebuilt. Imagine you lived there, you're one of these groups of people that came back, and you'd go to bed every night knowing there was no wall up, which meant that any bad guy, any you know, you know, crummy army could show up, and in the middle of the night while you're sleeping with your family and your kids and all that kind of stuff, they'd kick your door in and you know, kill everybody or, or, or worse, maybe, you know? And so they were, they were discouraged. This was a, 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 a crummy, crummy time. And every time they got up in the morning and they saw their city in the ruins and they saw the walls all broken up, it was a, a, a reminder to them that they had been defeated. It was a reminder to them that God had basically taken his hand off of off of their, their nation. And so these walls had to be rebuilt so that they could A, just have protection, and B, it would lift their spirits. And all of a sudden, all of the, the crumminess and being bummed out and feeling defeated and all that kind of stuff, it would you know, raise their, 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 their spirits, so to speak. Now let me tell you why they were in captivity in the first place. I'm gonna tell you why the, the Jews had been deported. Uh, to, to Babylon in the first place. It was basically because of sin. God had told, you know, the people, here's how I want you to live. Here's what I want you to do with your life. Here's how you ought to conduct yourself. And the people said, no, thank you. We're going to do life our own way. And God says, okay, you want to do life your own way? You want to do it apart from me? Then I'm going to take my hand off of you. And God allowed a, an invading army to come in and, and, and wipe out the city. And for some of you, as you look at maybe your family right now, maybe you look at your business, part of the reason why maybe there's turmoil in your family, there's turmoil in, 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 in your business, there's, there's turmoil you know, in your job, a lot of times it just comes down to the fact that you've chosen to blow off God and his principles for life. God has a lot to say about how you ought to conduct your business. God has a lot to say about how you ought to conduct your life as a family, how you as a man ought to live, how you as a woman ought to live, how you ought to raise your children. There's lots of things in this book, and when you make the decision to go, you know what, I'm not going to do it that way, it often comes with a consequence. And that's why this place is in ruins. The, the, the sinfulness of the people brought on, you know, some horrible consequences. But God is now allowing something to happen. He's allowing the Jews to come back home. He's allowing the Jews back into the city of Jerusalem. The problem is it's in a ruin. And so what do you need? What do you need when, when, when your business is a mess? 
What do you need when your family's a mess? What do you need when your town's a mess? You need a leader. You need somebody who can step up to the plate and lead. Be a good, godly leader. And that's where the story of Jeremiah uh, or Nehemiah uh, comes in. I want everybody to look at Nehemiah chapter one, okay? Verse one. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th, 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and great disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed with fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, prayed, and, 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 and even you know, prayed to the God of heaven. And then it, you get into um, his prayer. We're gonna look at that in a couple of weeks. Now I want you to notice that this book was written in first person, okay? It's actually written by Nehemiah. This is um, uh, his journal, if you will. We are going to get a firsthand glimpse into this man's life. He's written this thing. Nobody is writing it for him necessarily. This is, this is Nehemiah and his account of what took place uh, you know, way, way back. And what I want to do is, is this. Is here you have Nehemiah's brother. They get together, maybe over dinner, maybe over coffee. Nehemiah says, hey, tell me, how are things back in Jerusalem? And his brother says, boy, they're horrible. Things are really horrible. Yeah, maybe they've got the temple rebuilt, and yeah, we're able to go back home, but wow, the city is in ruins. The walls haven't been built back up. The morale is low. People are so discouraged. It's just a, a crummy, crummy atmosphere there. I mean, it was all bad news. Ne Nehemiah gets nothing but bad news. So Nehemiah decides that he wants to do something about it. He basically goes to God and says, God, use me. Let me be the, the one who rebuilds the wall. And God says, okay, Nehemiah, you the man. What I want to deal with is, why did he choose Nehemiah? What was it about Nehemiah that God said, okay, you can be the guy? Now, I want you to know something. Nehemiah was not a, um, a carpenter. He, he, he wasn't into construction. He was a cupbearer, and I'm going to talk about that next week. He knows nothing about how to build anything. It, it'd be like me. My wife's right down here, and this is no joke. Something breaks at our house. She has this belt she straps on. It's got, you know, hammers and, and, and nails and, you know, uh, screwdrivers that are crossways and the regular ones and the, got all the, you know, the stuff on it. And she goes to work. I don't, I don't get anywhere around it because I'll, you know, 
slice my finger off. I, I don't know how to make anything. Nehemiah was not a construction manager. He was just a man who had great character. And God says, okay, Nehemiah, you want to be the guy? You're the guy. And what I want to do is I, I, I want to look at why God chose Nehemiah in this first message. There are lots of reasons. And by the way, I'm only going to get through one of them. Um, so there's three on there, and this is a, a, a two-parter, okay? Number one, God chose Nehemiah because he was sensitive to the needs around him. God chose Nehemiah because he was sensitive to the needs around him. Look at verse four. Look, verse four is just loaded. You really get to see the heart of this guy. When I heard this, when I heard about all the crud that was going on in Jerusalem, when I heard about the fate of the people, when I heard about the, the morale of the people, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned. For days I fasted. For days I prayed to the God of heaven. He wept for days. He mourned for days. He fasted for days. He prayed for days. Nehemiah spent days praying. This wasn't, oh man, I heard about it and wow, what a bummer. And he sat down for two minutes and let out a quick prayer and then got up and went out and, you know, did whatever he did. This has impacted him. When he thought about the plight of those people, it, it, it did something to him. Nehemiah is just bummed out over what's happening. He, he cares deeply about these people. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to think about this. Nehemiah is at the peak of his career. He's made it. And I'm going to talk more about this, as I said, next week. He was a cupbearer. He's living on Easy Street. He's got the second best job in the kingdom, basically. He's got a great salary. He's got great benefits. He's a big shot in town. He doesn't have to rock the boat. I mean, there's a, a, a good chance that he could lose his job if he, you know, ruffles the, the wrong feathers. He could be fired. He lives at least 800 to 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. He's never been there. When you think about it, why should he care? He's got a great job. He's on easy street. Why, why get involved in what's happening in a city 800 miles away? Why risk it? Yet when he hears about it, man, he's sensitive to the needs of people. And, and this is the first principle of leadership that I want to bring out in this book. Leaders. Good leaders are always sensitive to the needs of the people around them. It might be the people in your home, your wife, your children, your husband. It might be if you own a business, you're sensitive to the employees that are around you. You see, you own the business and you're a leader. Doesn't mean you're a good one. It just means you sign the checks, and so people show up and do this, right? I'm talking about being a good leader. I'm talking about being a God-honoring leader. 
Some of you are the leaders in your classrooms, your teachers. And every day a whole bunch of little minds come in and, man, they look at you and you're the teacher or you're the coach. A good leader is sensitive to all the stuff that's going on. Not, not just, hey, you know, did you get good grades? Or, or hey, did you, did you get the product done in time and get it out the door, you know? Or, hey, did you get your room clean? Did you get the lawn mowed? Those are important, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But one of the things you learn about Nehemiah right out of the gate was this was a man who cared deeply about the people around him. He cared deeply about people he didn't even know. People that lived hundreds and hundreds of miles away from him. Look, life is pretty easy for most of us here, especially when you compare it to the rest of the world, okay? Most of the world is worried about whether they're going to have any food tonight to eat. Most of the world, about 90% of the world, would trade places with any one of you here in a heartbeat. They're trying to figure out, how am I going to eat tonight? And most of us, we were worried about, does our purse match our dress? Does my shirt match my pants? Does my couch match my carpet? Those are the kinds of things we worry about. Nothing wrong with having a nice purse that matches your pants. Nothing wrong with having a shirt that matches your pants. Nothing wrong with having a couch that matches you know, your, your carpet. Nothing wrong with those things. I just want you to understand that living in America, being a part of this family, we can become insulated to what's really happening out there in the world. And I want you to know, most of the world would trade places with any one of us. They'd cut off a, a limb to trade places and have your problems. They really would. We're pretty blessed here. Most of us. Last month, I uh, rented a store bus. I've done this a couple times. I, I rented a store bus, parked it right out here in front of the, 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 the venue, and I uh, had all of our pastors and elders and directors and staff, we loaded that bus up, over 50 of us, and I um, put some um, tour guides on the bus. And we took a tour of Modesto, We took a tour of a part of our town that we just don't get to very often. I minister on the corner of Tully and Pellendale. I live out in Village One, and that's not evil. It's just, this is where I live. This is where I do ministry. Nothing, nothing evil in that. What's evil is if I don't care about what's happening around me. And so I put the staff in the bus, and we took off, and our first stop was uh, South 9th Street. We literally stopped on 9th Street and got to see all of the prostitutes and the hookers, the whores. These were people who were made in the very image of God. Jesus hung on a cross for them. And somehow the enemy has just deceived them and tricked them and they're just living a, a, a life of destruction. 
We were able to see, you know, the, the, the crack dealers making deals. We saw the hotels, the, the shivas where you can get a room for, you know, uh, uh, an hour. There we were parked. We got to hear about some of the ministries that are taking place over there. Pastor Scott was there. Pastor Stubbard over in the venue was there. It was a sobering moment just to be stopped on 9th Street and just see the, the, the plight of, of some of these people. People that Jesus died for. And it's easy to go, well, you know, they got themselves in that mess on their own, you know. <laughs> Look, uh, there was a big part of my life where I didn't believe in God. I mocked God. I had gotten myself into a bloody mess. But Jesus still went to a cross for me. He still cared about me even though I got myself into a mess. But the tour didn't end there. We then made our way over into the airport district and drove up and down some of the streets and you saw all the children just out running around and playing. We stopped at this park and got out, and we had somebody from the Modesto City Schools there, a, a really neat guy, believer, who shared with us some of the things that they're doing and how we as, as believers could be salt and light and, and help out and be a blessing. And it was really just a, a great time. And then we, we prayed and it was just really special. We, we met a lady who's kind of like the Pope of the airport district, just a great woman of God who loves the people there, was born and raised there and God has kept her there. But you couldn't help but get on the bus and go, You don't have to go to Africa to find broken, broken lives, lives that are in despair. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe or India. You can drive five minutes in our own town and find it. And yet we can, it's just easy, isn't it, just to wake up and we do our lives, we have our friends, we live in our neighborhoods, we come to this church, and there's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong is, is when you forget about others, when you're not sensitive to others. Here at this church, we have missionaries that we've sent out literally all over the world, the, the Panapintos. We sent Rocco uh, Panapinto and his wife to Germany. One couple, two people, and we reached Germany. Two. And there are 5,000 people that come here. The airport district ought to look different than it does. Ninth Street ought to look different than it does. Hey, Panapintos, go reach Germany. Two of them. And here we are, this huge family of believers. And I want you to know, you do care deeply, and I'm going to get there in a minute. But the tour didn't end there. We got on, back on the bus and made our way over to the King uh, uh, Mellis Park, uh, where the King Kennedy Center is. And there's a ministry there we support called the Vine House. We got out and went into the Vine House and packed in there and 
Got to hear some of the great things that God's doing through that ministry, but wow. There's a liquor store right next to the Vine House. This little crummy, dinky liquor store. I mean, it is crummy. And I'm told that it's no place in Stanislaus County, there's one other place in Stanislaus County that sells more liquor than that place does. And if you've ever driven by it, you go, what? That hole in the wall? Boy, the demons just have a grip over there. Just a grip. And so we prayed and made our way back home. And the reason I I did all this was because I didn't want us to forget as leaders about people in our town, our own town. See, Nehemiah was sensitive to people that were 800 miles away, 1,000 miles away. And we need to do that. I mean, Germany is a long way away. We got missionaries in Africa. We got missionaries all over the world. I'm not called to go to Africa. I'm not called to go to Zimbabwe. I'm not called to go to Tanzania. I'm not called to go to those places. I need to care about them, and we invest money there. But I do live here in Modesto, and so do you. So do you, Christian. One of the, one of the great um, principles of leadership is that leaders, good leaders, they care about others. They care about what's happening around them, the people around them. Here's my point. The people that that God uses, the people that God raises up to be leaders are people who care about the things that God cares about. In other words, if you want to be used by God, I mean really used by God, you've got to care about the things that God cares about. And let me tell you what God cares about. That cross isn't just for decorations. He cares about people. That's what he cares about. He cares deeply about people. He cares so much about people that the Father sent his Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, to come and die for us. And if you want to be used by God, you got to, you got to care. you got to be sensitive to, to the things that God is really sensitive to. I, I'm just so tired, and it doesn't happen in this church, but, man, Christians can get so hung up on things that God doesn't care about. <laughs> Every so often, I do get an email from somebody, and, hey, you didn't have a tie-on. Listen, God's not up in heaven going, oh man, you know, that countryman. God didn't have a tie on. You think God cares about that? When you look at the cross, Christian, let me just, let me just tell you something. God doesn't care. And you'll never convince me of that. So just save your time.
There are some things that God cares deeply about. And if you want to be used by the Lord, you've got to care deeply about those same things. Somebody came to Jesus and asked a great question. It says this in Matthew chapter 22. An expert in religious law tried to trap Jesus with this question. And it doesn't matter that he tried to trap him. It's still a great question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? You look at the whole Old Testament, Jesus, can you boil it down? I mean, there's lots of laws in there, lots of things said by God. Hey, Jesus, boil it down. Man, give me the one thing, one thing that I need to really focus my life on here in 2013. I mean, there's all kinds of things in the Bible, big book, lots of words, lots of stuff in there. What's the one thing? Great question. And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first, and it's the greatest commandment. There's nothing greater you can do with your life than to say, God, I give my life to you. I'm going to worship you with my life. In fact, when you look at the big ten commandments, the first four are all about worshiping God. God says, it's me and me only. That's number one. Don't make for yourself an, an idol and worship that. Don't use my name in vain and set aside one day of the week and keep it holy, keep the Sabbath. It's all about that first greatest commandment. It's all about God. But then Jesus said, there's a second that's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Everything that the great prophet Jeremiah taught or Ezekiel taught or, or, or whoever it is, you, you boil it all down and this is it. You love God with everything you got and then you love others as you love yourself. And for those of you that are new, visiting, maybe you're new in the Lord, that isn't a narcissistic love. Hey, we need to love others the way we love ourselves. You know, we get in front of a mirror, navel gaze or whatever. That's not what Jesus is saying there. What he's saying there is this, is You loved yourself so much today that you met a need that you had. You were hungry, right? You woke up and you you made eggs, you made toast, you made bagels, and you fed yourself. You loved yourself to the degree that you met that need. You were hungry. And God says, do that. You're supposed to do that. That's one of the ways you love yourself is you meet your needs. But then he says, don't stop there. Don't just feed yourself. Think about others. Love others. Meet their needs just the way you met your own need. That's what, 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 what matters. And one of the things that impresses me about you is that, is that most of you, 99.6% of you, you care deeply about other people. I know that. And one of the ways that caring shows up is through your giving. Jesus said that where your wallet is, that's where your heart's going to be. Doesn't matter what you tell me. Jesus said where your money is, where your wealth is, that's where this is. And I'm sure there are some preacher in town that will step up and and, and disagree with me, but I don't care. They're wrong. Um, (laughs) Uh, you are the, the, the most generous people. 
And what that tells me is that you care deeply about others. For some of you that are new, just to let you know, when that little green thing went by, that doesn't end up in my office and I roll around in it, you know, <laughs> look at all this money. You know, I'm not Mr. Krabs on, on you know, SpongeBob <laughs> thinking about money. They need me money. <laughs> Let me tell you where, where that goes. We have a ministry called Good Samaritan Ministry right out here. And every month, over 250 new families go to our Good Sam building and they get food for themselves and for their families. And 95% of those people don't go to Big Valley Grace. They don't go to this church. Most of us in this church, we're, we're pretty well off. It's here for us, and there are people in our own church who do need it, and that's what it's there for. But the majority of the people don't go to this church. You don't have to go to our church for us to care about you. You see, people are made in the image of God. God died on a cross for people, and by virtue of those two theological truths, I'm compelled to care. You're compelled to care. I mean, how crummy would it be to have somebody show up and they're starving? Uh, do you go to Big Valley? No? Oh, sorry. Whoa, that, 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 just, that just really stinks. I mean, that, doesn't that just feel crummy? Or hey, uh, do you know Jesus Christ as your savior? Uh, no, sorry. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, I'll tell you what, I'll die on the cross as long as you're gonna follow me. He died on the cross even though you didn't follow him. You weren't following him. 250 new families. And by the way, that food just doesn't magically appear. We have to go out and buy all that food. Thanksgiving reach. It doesn't ever make the paper. We don't care, we don't do it for that reason. But almost a thousand families, right before Thanksgiving, we went and gave out food to people. Most of them don't go to our church. We don't care where you go to church. We just found out people were hurting and they needed food. And we went and delivered to almost a thousand families. That's over and above the 250 families every month that we help. And the only way we can do that is because you're just generous people. Love Modesto. Some of you have seen those signs out there. You know that. The printer didn't say, hey, listen, because this is such a wonderful ministry, we're going to print all those signs up for free. <laughs> Somebody had to pay for all those signs. You had to have a leader who went out and makes all those contacts and, and puts it all together. And because of your generosity, because you care deeply about people, we're able to hire a, a pastor and a secretary who put all that together and went out there and makes all those connections so we can go out and be a blessing in our own town. Now, we don't put Big Valley Grace on all those signs. We don't care about it being us. It's not about us. I'm just trying to tell you where some of those shekels go that you give and why we're able to do the things that we do. The backpack giveaway. In August, this platform is filled with over 1,000 backpacks that are filled with pencils and pins and paper and protractors and erasers and, and all the stuff. And those backpacks don't go to the kids of our school. Maybe five of them do. Those, ki those backpacks all go to skid, uh, uh, kids that are in the public schools that have come from a different part of town or have families that can't afford a backpack. And here they are going to go to school to try to learn, and they don't have the tools needed to, to, to learn. And that's not okay. It's just not okay. 
And man, I see the generosity of all of you, and you buy the backpacks, and you put the stuff in there, and then we just, we just go give them away to kids. We have the counseling ministries here, uh, Celebrate Recovery, the, the landing, Oliviana's Closet. My wife works in Oliviana's Closet. And Saturday, Oliviana's Closet's a ministry to really young women who are in very difficult situations. They had a baby, and thank the Lord they didn't kill the baby, but they had the baby, but they don't have anything. And it's one thing for the church to say, abortion's wrong, abortion's wrong, and, and, and it is wrong but they're not doing anything. We say abortion's wrong, have the baby, and guess what? We're, we're gonna walk with you through it. We'll help you. And so Oliviana's Closet's a place where moms can come and get all the clothes that they need for you know, their children and, and get the diapers and the Similac or whatever that stuff's called, all the, all the stuff. And just this past Saturday, my wife was there, and 30 moms showed up at our Oliviana Liviana's closet little thing, and 30 children were all able to get, little babies were able to get their clothes and all, all that kind of stuff. Because you. Let me tell you, as I was reading this, and I thought, man, Nehemiah was so sensitive about people and their needs. You came to my mind. You remind me a lot of Nehemiah. You, you do care about the needs of people that are out there. And it's one thing to say, well, you know, I really care, but you don't give, you don't do anything. You do give. You are so generous, it's unbelievable. And not only do you give the shekels, but you can go to the gospel mission, you go to the Manesto Pregnancy Center, you go to the Vine House, you go to some of these great ministries that are out there that we support, and not only do you care about them and the fact that we, we give to them, but we also show up in mass. We're servants at those places. And I'm not doing this to toot my own horn. I'm not doing that. I'm just, I want you to understand this biblical principle that good leaders, good leadership, man, they care about people. They're sensitive to the, to, to, to the needs of people. Bob Pierce, the, the founder of World Vision, used to say, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. I think Nehemiah looked at these people in Jerusalem and his heart was broken. And may God continue to transform us into a family of believers whose heart is constantly broken over the things that break the, 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 the heart of God. In John chapter 16, Jesus shows up at the funeral of a friend, and when he sees all of the pain and the sorrow that sin and death had brought, he weeps. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and it says that when he saw the city he cried, and he didn't cry because it was, whoa, I'm at Disneyland. No, he saw the, the heartache and the pain and the sorrow of the people, and he was moved. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks at the people and saw that they were confused and that they were helpless, that they were people who, who were like a, a sheep that didn't have a, have a shepherd, and it says that he was full of compassion. Jesus was, without a doubt, the, the greatest leader ever. 
And one of the things you can't miss when you study his life is that he was very sensitive to the needs of the people around him. And I love the moment when this woman was caught in the very act of adultery and was dragged through the town. How embarrassing that must have been. How humiliating that must have been for that human being. And she's thrown at the feet of Jesus. And these religious leaders, they weren't good leaders, said, hey, the law says she's supposed to be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus began to write in the dirt. And we don't know exactly what he wrote. But whatever it was, all the guys basically turned around and left. I don't think it was nice. I, I don't know exactly. But whatever it was, it sure scared off a whole bunch of crummy leaders. And now in an intimate moment, in a dignified moment, Jesus says, look, Don't live that crummy life you're living. You're just involved in crummy stuff, stuff that's ruining you. That's not the life I have for you. Don't, don't go and sin anymore. Don't do that. Don't do it. It's destroying you. Yes, we care about sin here. But we also care just about the fact that human beings have been deceived by, by, by the enemy. Look, at, at the bottom of your page, and, and I'm a little bit late, but at the bottom of your page, I got this little sensitivity scale. And this is where some of you right now are going, oh no, oh no, oh no. Because you're just not very sensitive, right? Now listen to me, listen to me. That's a good sign. That, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is alive and well inside of you. Some of you might look at that scale and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm just not very sensitive. I'm not sensitive to my, my wife. I'm not very sensitive to my kids. In fact, the other day I asked my kids, where's my wife? Where, where's mommy? Well, she's been in the hospital for two weeks. You know, what? How'd that happen? What? Really? Uh, some of you are like that. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you're a one or a two. And right now you're, you're just going, oh man, oh man. Look, look, it's okay. Th that's, what, that's what this is about. That's what preaching of the word is about. D.L. Moody said that the Bible wasn't written just to answer all your questions. It was written to change your life. And sometimes when you come face to face with the word of God, it, it, it's painful. It can be brutal. But it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you and he wants to change you. He wants to transform your life. And for some of you right now, you're going, oh man, I don't do this very well. I'm not a very sensitive person. Oh, I'm the leader of my home. You're just not a good one. And maybe today's a day and you get in your car and you look at your wife or you look at your husband and say, you know what? I'm really sorry. I haven't been all that sensitive. Would you pray for me? I, I, I really want to do better this next year. 
Maybe you might sit your kids down and say, you know what, I really haven't cared that much about your life. And that's just been really crummy. Mommy's really sorry. Daddy's just sorry that I didn't care that much about your life. Maybe some of you that are business owners, you know, you're the leader and people do this because you signed the paycheck, man. But frankly, you don't really know what's going on with your employees. You're not that insensitive. You're just insensitive to what's happening in their lives. Maybe you go and sit them down. They know you're a Christian. And say, you know what? You guys have all been good workers and all of that, but I just really haven't cared about what's happening in your life. Some of you are, are teachers. And the you know, kids come into your classrooms and, you know, man, you know, I got to get A's. I want all my kids to get B's. But you don't really know what's going on in their lives. Let me tell you something. When I was in high school, I didn't know the Lord. And I got to Grace M. Davis High School, and there was a coach. His name was Mike Burroughs. Mike Burroughs calls me into his um, office. He, 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 was a, he was a coach. And he says, hey, Rick, just want to ask you, how, how are things going on in your life? I said, well, they're going to fine, coach. Why? He said, well, I was looking at your file, and I noticed that when you were younger, your parents divorced. Dude. He looked in my file. He, he wasn't interested in whether I could throw a long bomb or I could run the football or he wasn't worried about what my, what my you know, you know, my 40 distance time was. He cared about my life. And guess what I found out about him? He knew the Lord. He knew the Lord. Maybe some of you in your classrooms gather up all your kids and say, you know, kids, I care about you a lot, and, and all I've really cared about is whether you do well in school and you need to, but you know what, frankly, I haven't really cared about you. And I want to do that. You see, it's okay that you feel a little beat up by the Holy Spirit right now. It's okay. I don't do it all perfectly. Trust me, my, my wife just had surgery, had you know, foot surgery. And I wish I could stand up here and say, you are looking at the vision of sensitivity. <laughs> As she was there with her foot up, um, um, what are we eating tonight? What are we, what are we doing? We're all going to starve today. That's what's going to happen. You've got to get up. I don't care how bad your foot is. <laughs> uh, there are dishes. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with them? Hey, look, look. We're all on a journey here. Some of you might do really well in this, and that's great. Some of you aren't doing so very well. What, what's important is, is that we learn and grow from this, and we allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to transform our lives. I'm going to tell you, as we go through this series, there is just so much here. It is rich. And if you'll hang with me, everybody always shows up at church, you know, the first weekend. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get my spiritual life together. And you're here, and then next week, look around. The guy's next to you ain't, ain't here. Don't do that. You make a commitment to be here each week, and let's allow Nehemiah, this incredible leader, to motivate us and challenge us and encourage us to be the leaders in our homes, in our businesses, at our jobs, in our classrooms, wherever it is that God, God has us. And I guarantee you some great things are going to happen. But the first principle is be sensitive to those that are around you. Why don't you stand up and, and let me pray, okay?
Father, thank you, Lord, for today. I, I, I've enjoyed this, Lord. I've enjoyed the music. I enjoyed being over in the venue and worshiping over there. I, I really enjoyed fellowshipping today and seeing a lot of new people and meeting new people and seeing a bunch of these kids that are home from, from school, Lord. And Boy, I sure enjoyed communion, remembering your, your life and your death and your resurrection, Lord. Father, I've enjoyed your word and, and how it has challenged me. And Lord, this has been a good weekend here at Big Valley. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. And Father, um, I pray that as we leave this place, that we'd all be committed to allowing you to transform our lives. That we'd humble ourselves and allow the word of God, the spirit of God to work in all of our lives. That we would be the leaders you want us to be. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said. Amen. Okay, blessing. See you here next week.